All right, Second Peter. Here we go. Let's see if we can get through this. No bets, please. No booking of bets around the auditorium. Second Peter. Now I'm going to read again, beginning in verse four, because I want to keep this whole passage in context. But we'll pick it up actually in verse six. We'll cover verses six, seven, and eight, Lord willing. Verse 4, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Verse 7, delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. That righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction. Up through verse 8 is where we're going to go today. Father, we just pray now that you'd bless this time in your word, that you'd speak to our hearts, that you'd feed our spirits. May we continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So, as we've been covering extensively over the last several weeks, Peter's first example of God's judgment uh, was the example of the angels who sinned. He references here in verse 4, and we talked about this from Genesis 6, from Jude chapter 1. There's only one chapter in Jude, and we looked at that. Jude gives us a similar countdown of judgments, and in both cases, with Peter and with Jude, it's in reference to false teachers, very interesting, and we will talk about that more as we go through the message. So, we finished up last week with Noah, verse 5, now we move on to these subsequent examples God turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. And again, we did actually cover this in depth last week as well as we talked about the uh, militant homosexuality that had overtaken those communities. And by the way, this story of Sodom and Gomorrah is another of many Bible stories, of course, that have been greatly criticized by secular historians and archaeologists. But in fact, interestingly enough, our very own Dr. Stephen Collins from right here in Albuquerque, Trinity Southwest University, spearheaded an archaeological dig, excavation, over there near the Dead Sea, which actually uncovered the remains of Sodom and Gomorrah. How many of you knew that already? Very exciting. And so once again, proving the Bible narrative to be correct. I love the way God does that. Over and over again, people try to discredit the Word of God, and over and over again, they are the ones who are discredited. He condemned them to destruction. And then some would say, well, see, I told you God was a mean, nasty, hateful God. No, God is altogether holy, righteous, and just. And He has absolute authority to judge and condemn the wicked conduct of human beings, as well as angelic beings, as we've already seen. See, the thing is, God is perfect. And so his perfection 
demands perfection. And that's a problem because guess what? You and I are not perfect. And that's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. But he has every right, all authority, to judge wickedness. Who determines what wickedness is? God. He's the creator of all things. He made us in his image. Adam and Eve gave way to the deception of Satan and fell plunging the entire human race into an eternal state of sin that can only be remedied and repaired by the blood of Christ. And you see, the point that Peter's trying to make for us in this second chapter of Second Peter, God has done this in history past, and he will do it again. Let no one think that they can defy the God of creation and go unpunished. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Many people think that he can be mocked and that they can get away with it. They're wrong. For whatever a man sows, so here we have an agricultural analogy or metaphor, the sowing of seed. And the idea being that whatever type of seed you sow, that's what you're going to reap, right? You're going to, if you plant seeds for an apple tree, then you're going to get an apple tree and so on and so forth. Nowadays, most of us buy our plants already in the initial stages of growth, but at the very most basic fundamental level, seed planting, whether it's wheat, corn, you name it, what you sow is what you reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. In other words, you can't sow bad seed and expect a good harvest. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So God's trying to send us a message here. He wants good things for us. But we have to sow the right kind of seed in order to get there. Condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. In other words, you look back on the past and see how God has dealt with wickedness, with evil. That ought to cause you to stop and say, you know what, I don't want to go there. And by the way, that's why it's important for parents to discipline their children although we don't see a lot of that today. We see rampant disobedience and disrespect on the part of young people because parents today don't believe in discipline. They don't believe in punishment. And what you're sending a message to them is that it's okay, do whatever you want. There are no consequences. But if we go back to the Word of God, we find that that's just not true. We can be instruments of deception to our children by leading them to believe there's no consequences for your actions when the Bible clearly teaches that there are. These are universal spiritual truths that cannot be undone. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It doesn't matter whether you teach it or not. It doesn't matter whether you live it or not. You can't undo it. It's built into this universe that God has created. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. So God's given mankind 
Very clear examples. But again, this is why it's so important to be in the Word of God because the world is going to tell you a different story, aren't they? Just like the devil told Eve a different story way back in Genesis chapter 3. Oh, you'll not surely die. God's trying to put one over on you because he knows that when you eat of that tree, you're going to be like him, knowing good and evil. God's lying to you. God's deceiving you. He's ripping you off. See, the devil always points the finger at the other person for what he himself is doing. The devil accused God of being the deceiver and the liar when in fact the devil is the liar. He's the father of all lies, Jesus said. And by the way, you better keep your eyes and ears open because that's happening all around us in the world today. The devil is working through willing human instruments to cast aspersion on those that are right as though they're the ones who are wrong. This was predicted in the Old Testament that the time would come when people would call good evil and evil good. We're living it right now. God has given mankind very clear examples in history, past, of what happens to those who choose to ignore him and live life on their own terms. I did it my way. Master and commander. You know, I'm the master of my own destiny. I'm the commander of my ship. Well, uh, good luck when you crash and burn on the rocks. It's much better if you make God the master and commander. And you can just be one of the shipmates, right? As Paul said, we're under shepherds. Even more than that, we're slaves, bond servants, bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the deal, folks. Again, there's so many Bibles that have been printed on this planet in so many different languages. The scriptures are readily available. The gospel's been taken pretty much to the ends of the earth. But you have to read it. You have to take heed to it. No one can say that they have not been given fair warning. Well, I didn't know that. Well, did you read the Bible? No. Never was really interested in that. Sorry. God made it available to you. His word's been out there. And I mean, for goodness sakes, another sign that we're in the last days, the last of the last days, is the way you can get teaching and even just pure scripture on the internet, every medium today, satellite, television, radio, internet. There's never in the history of the human race been more access to the truth of God's word and it never in the history of the human race has there been a greater effort to twist it, pervert it. Right? We talked about this at the conference too, but you've heard me talk about it before. One of the most popular so-called Bibles today is the, the Massage. Also known as the Message. I call it the Massacre. That's a good one too. Now there's another one out called Passion Bible or something like that. I told you guys years ago, way back when we were over in the uh, shopping center down the street, I suspected there might be an LGBT Bible, and I looked it up on Amazon, and certainly there it was, right there. Everything modified to accommodate those of that persuasion. But no one can say that they have not been given fair warning. Verse 7, 
We're still talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, but now we focus on Lot. God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For he who sows to his flesh, this is just like Galatians 6, 7, and 8. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. That's, that's a no-brainer. What would you choose? Corruption, death, destruction, or everlasting life? No-brainer. And yet, sadly, so many people refuse to respond to God's offer of eternal life. He delivered righteous lot. And so there, Peter's making another point here in this passage, and that is that even as God promises to punish the wicked, why does he make that promise? Because he's fair and just and righteous and holy in all of his ways. And we'll see here in a moment that, you know, Lot was grieved. He was vexed in his spirit by the things that he saw taking place around him. And the heart of the righteous, and again, the righteous are not those who are perfect. The righteous are simply those who have confessed their sins, repented, and turned to God. That's what, it's his righteousness that he places upon us. But the heart, the spirit of the righteous are vexed by the unbridled, deliberate activities of the wicked and in God's righteousness and holiness and justice he promises to punish the wicked even as he promises to protect and to deliver the righteous. Again, the righteous are those who acknowledge God's authority and choose to live for him. Not perfect, but saved by grace as we confess our sins, repent, and follow him, living lives of obedience to his holy word. I, I came up with a new concept a few weeks ago, if you remember this, we're talking about how people now want to identify as something that they're not. Well, I'm a man, but I identify as a woman. I've been so tempted. I, won't, I probably won't do it, but I've been tempted. Never mind. <laughs> Men who want to identify as a woman, women who I want, want to identify as a man, you know, Caucasians who want to identify as an African-American, Rachel Dolezal. How many of you have heard of her? What an amazing situation that was. But then there are those who want to identify as Christians. You see what I'm saying? Well, I don't act like it. I don't live like it. But I identify as a Christian. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Again, we're not saved by works, but our works are indicative of the fact that we are truly born again. Galatians 3, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. We are saved by grace through faith. It's faith that saves us, not our works, but then once we are saved, once we're born again, once we're filled with the Spirit of God, the obvious outgrowth of that should be that we live lives in obedience to Him. Not perfect. James says we all stumble in many ways. 
but recognizing that when we do, we need to repent, we need to confess, we need to be restored by our Heavenly Father when we do fall short, and we will. All have sinned and come short or fallen short of the glory of God. Habakkuk 2.4 Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Again, we know as we delve further into the life of Lot, he was definitely not perfect, and yet God refers to him in his word as righteous Lot. And again, Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The enemy will come and try to heap condemnation on us. There's a difference between condemnation and conviction. Conviction is a good thing that God brings to our awareness some sin in our lives that needs to be dealt with but it always brings with it a good feeling a feel, God is watching over me God cares about me he's not going to let me continue on in this sin he's going to make me aware of it so that I can make it right condemnation has this ability to make you feel hopeless helpless you want to hang it up you want to give it up and that's from the devil. God will not condemn us, but he will convict us. So we're told here, righteous Lot. He wasn't perfect, but he was saved by faith. Just as Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. But isn't it wonderful that even though you and I know who we really are, God knows too. But even though we know we're not perfect, far from it, we are sinners saved by grace, when God looks at you, he says, Righteous John. Isn't that cool? Righteous John. We have right there, to, right there together. This is like the baby with the overalls. This is amazing. <laughs> well, amazing things happening here today. Righteous Lot. And that's another way that God wants to encourage us because the enemy will try to heap condemnation on you and remind you of how rotten you are. And the problem with that is he's right. But we also have to be reminded, you know, what the devil thinks of you doesn't matter one bit. It's all about what God thinks. And God says you are righteous in Christ. Isn't that encouraging? He was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. So rather than embrace the filthy conduct of the wicked in his city, Lot was oppressed. He was unhappy. He was upset. He was unaccepting of this lifestyle that they had embraced. He was oppressed by the sinful actions of those around him. Again, he wasn't perfect, but he certainly wasn't accepting of those activities. He was burdened by them. It, it burdened his heart to see those things going on. But unfortunately, many today who identify as believers seem to be doing just the opposite. In fact, this new mentality that is sweeping through the churches is that we need to embrace all of these things 
to be more seeker-friendly, if you will, to accept people just as they are without expecting any change. Now, Jesus says, come just as you are, but then be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be born again by the Spirit of God. Become a new creature in Christ Jesus. The imperfect but righteous lot was oppressed or vexed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, and yet many today who identify as believers are not. I want to read you Psalms 1. And in my um, computer Bible that I used, there was a, was a heading here for this, Psalm 1. It says, The way of the righteous and the end of the ungodly. Verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. The greenest part of our city is there along the Rio Grande, isn't it? The bosque? The rest of the city is pretty brown and dry. But, and if you're flying in or if you're driving down from the northeast heights here and you look down, you see that green strip going through the valley, right? That's where the water is. And Jesus says, God says, that if we delight in the law of the Lord meditating day and night, we will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, rich, lush, fruitful, not dead and dry. That brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now I want to read from 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Because if you do, the yoke's on you. No. Does that mean we're, we're supposed to become monks? We're supposed to go live in a cave? No. But to be yoked means it could be married, it could be in business together, some kind of a connection that goes beyond just you know the person and you are seeking to be a godly example to them, but you don't engage in any kind of intimate relationship with the believer and the unbeliever. And again, there's a lot of that going on too. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? If you're a righteous person and you spend all your time hanging out with lawless people, you will become lawless. Bad company corrupts good morals. We just read it in Psalm 1. Blessed is man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. What communion has light with darkness? They don't, they don't mix, do they? When we come into this auditorium, it's dark. The minute we turn the lights on, the darkness flees. There's no fellowship between light and darkness. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, which is another name for the devil? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Good question. Theoretically, ideally, not very much. You might like the same football team, but a believer and an unbeliever don't have much in common unless the, the believer begins to compromise. Get it? And again, that doesn't mean you're nasty to them or mean to them. You show them the love of Christ, 
but you don't get involved with them to, on a level that causes you to become corrupted. That takes strength. That takes commitment. That takes dedication. That takes putting God first in your life. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Obviously nothing. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. James 4.4 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It means you're his enemy. You're at war with him. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. Lot did not love the things in his world. He was oppressed by them. Now, if we go back and study his history, he made some bad choices and that's why he wound up there. But that didn't mean he liked being there. And ultimately, God would deliver him. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And this is a challenge for all of us because there are many things in this world that are very tantalizing, titillating, have the appearance of desirability. John, in his first epistle, talks about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So it might appear as though Lot being oppressed was really a bummer, but it was actually a good thing. Again, Peter echoes Galatians 6, 7, and 8. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Verse 8 of 2 Peter 2. For that righteous man, Lot, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Now, it's not fun to be tormented in our souls by seeing and hearing the lawless deeds of the ungodly. But according to God, this is the proper response. Are you hearing me? And see, a lot of people have capitulated. They've given in. They don't like being tormented in their righteous soul. They don't like being called, you know, right-wing, Bible-thumping, fundamentalist, Christian terrorist, on and on and on, haters. So they capitulate. They give in. They become accepting because it's more comfortable. Nobody would choose to be tormented in your soul, but that's the proper response because we're not supposed to love this world. We're supposed to look forward to and long for dwelling forever in the presence of God. And yet I've heard Christians say, well, I hope the rapture doesn't happen too soon. I got a lot of things to do yet. I want to do this. I want to do that. James talks about this. People say, well, go here and there and do this and do that. Pride. I want to wait till I'm the CEO. And then Jesus can come. And Jesus says, well, thank you very much. 
Thank you for giving me your permission to come back. Oh, and if you don't want me to, then I'll wait. I don't want to hurt your feelings now. Don't want to come back too soon. I want to make sure you, your agenda is carried out. That's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? I had this experience in my own life growing up, even though I've shared my testimony about my grandmother, my aunts, my uncles growing up in the Foursquare Church, getting saved at an early age. But my parents were not following God. I grew up in what I would call an ungodly household. And that made me want to be godly. I was repulsed and repelled. I loved my parents. A lot of profanity, a lot of smoking, drinking, cussing, all that. I loved them, but I didn't want to be like that. Because I was saved at about four years of age. And I was talking to my friend Steve Johnson up there in Omaha. I gave that uh, message uh, on vision, revelation, and the restraint of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I can look back on my life and I can see how God always had me on a short leash. Even when I was not walking with Him, He was restraining me because I'd been born again by the Spirit of God. And He would only let me go so far and then He would pull me back. Until finally I yielded my life completely over to Him. But even as a child, I was vexed, I was tormented in my soul and my spirit by the actions of my parents. I loved them. They weren't horrible people. They weren't criminals or anything like that. But just the ungodliness vexed me. And it made me want to be just the opposite. We should be seriously bothered by the wickedness taking place all around us, and yet there's constant pressure not to be, right? We should be bothered by it. Righteous Lot was tormented. If we're not tormented by the wickedness we see around us, then we're slipping. We're sliding. We should be seriously bothered by the wickedness taking place all around us if we're comfortable with these things. Houston, we have a problem. Now, having said that, we are to follow the example of our Lord and Savior and love those who are lost and in bondage to sin. You've heard it many times. Love the sinner but hate the sin, right? I think we hopefully do a pretty good job with loving the sinner, although some people can be pretty judgmental and pretty legalistic. But where we really seem to fall short is hating the sin, Right? Oh, well, we're not supposed to hate. Yes, we are. We're supposed to hate what God hates. We love what God loves and we hate what God hates. And God hates sin because sin is destructive. Sin kills. Not just physically, but spiritually. We're to be just like him. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Nobody's excluded. Christ died for everyone. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If God loves the whole world, then we're supposed to love the whole world. But we're not supposed to love the sin. That's where we get into trouble. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, or still sinners, Christ died for us. Some people think they have to be good enough 
before they come to God that he will accept them. That will never happen. Just might as well quit right now. Give up right now. You're never going to be good enough on your own to be accepted by God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're to love our enemies, the Bible says. But the danger is when we begin to love what they do. For the present, we're called like Lot to dwell among them, exhibiting to them the love of Christ. But the time will surely come when, like Lot, we will be removed from the midst of lawless, wicked people, and he will pour out, God will pour out his wrath upon an unbelieving world. Luke 17, 26 through 30, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. History past shows us how God has judged and dealt with wickedness. And the Bible also tells us that this will happen again in the future. In both Noah's day and Lot's day, the people were steeped in wickedness. But they thought they were doing just fine until the very moment that judgment was poured out upon them. The conditions in the world today are exactly the same. And as we close our study for today, let's be reminded of how Peter began this dissertation on judgment. Way back in verse 1, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. I could name names right now. I'm restraining myself. The restraining work of the Holy Spirit is working in me right now. But maybe you're thinking of the same names. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. But see, the very fact that people would even get uncomfortable with these kinds of discussions. I can remember there's a guy, I really loved him, he used to come to the church a while back. He got very offended with me because I was making disparaging remarks about Rick Warren and Joel Osteen. The very fact that you would get offended when a pastor, a teacher, a preacher would identify a false teacher by name tells me you're sliding. You're not vexed like you should be. You should be vexed when these deceptive false teachers come on the scene and begin to lead literally millions of people astray. That should vex you in your spirit. But instead, people get vexed by guys like me who will speak the truth. That's okay. I'm not going anywhere until God's done with me. And when he's done, it's hasta la vista, baby. Perhaps, folks, from what Peter is telling us, the greatest wickedness of all in these last days is that of teaching false doctrine and leading people away from the truth God has made known to us through his word. 
Because again, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The devil wants to take as many people to hell with him as possible. What better way to do that than to spread false teaching and false doctrine, misleading people from the true narrow path. Peter assures us that these deeds will not go unpunished. It's not our place. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's God's place to judge, but it's our place to warn. Four times in Matthew 24, Jesus warns us. Matthew 24 is one of the most important passages in the Bible concerning the last days, the end times. Four times Jesus warns us at the number one hallmark. Four times in one chapter. The number one hallmark of the last days will be widespread deception. Ephesians 5, 6, let no one, no one. It's not okay to be deceived if it's done by a nice guy like Rick Warren or Joel Osteen or any of these other false teachers. It's not okay. Let no one deceive you. And again, they're just two of the most prominent examples. There's a multitude of them out there. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Empty words, purpose-driven. Or as they like to say on the West Coast, porpoise-driven. SeaWorld, porpoise-driven life. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Folks, we're very close to the finish line. I believe that with all my heart. And we are one way or the other, right? Either we're going to get raptured out of here or we're going to die. Either way, we're going to be with him. We're very close to the finish line. We must continue to fight the good fight of the faith and, the, and finish the race set before us. Finally, Hebrews 10, beginning of verse 35. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence. And where is your confidence? Is your confidence in God? Is your confidence in the truth of his word? Or is it in these false words of the false teachers, the false prophets, the feel-good, Dr. Feel-goods of the church. Where is your confidence? If it's in the Lord, if it's in the truth of his word, you're in good shape. But don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, and by that's not a one-time deal, that means living the rest of your life for him. After you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise at the finish line, at the end of the race. Verse 37, Hebrews 10, for yet a little while. Now remember, this was written 2,000 years ago. A thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord. A little while, but if it was only a little while then, how short is the time now? Yet a little while, and he who is coming will come. Jesus is coming, folks. Nobody can stop him. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It doesn't matter whether you want him to come or not. He's coming. And he will not tarry. He will not tarry. It's not as though the Lord's up there, like some of these people I mentioned. Well, I hope the rapture doesn't happen too soon. Well, Father, I'm kind of enjoying it up here. Uh, the angels and I, we've got a good game of Scrabble going on. So can we delay this whole rapture thing, Father? No, Jesus is ready. He's chomping at the bit. He's just waiting for the word from the Father to call us home 
and unleash his wrath upon a wicked world and then to come back seven years later and establish his kingdom on the earth. He who is coming will come and he will not tarry. The moment the Father gives the word, it's done. Now the just shall live by faith. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And this is the important part, the last verse we read this morning. But we are not of those who draw back, are we? We are not of those who draw back to perdition. Wow. That's one of those verses that can really challenge your once saved, always saved doctrine. Because perdition... Judas was called the son of perdition. Satan entered into him. The Antichrist is called the son of perdition. Satan will enter into him. Perdition has to do with eternal punishment in hell. We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. How many of you here today believe to the saving of the soul? Amen. Let's stand. Can I have Nikki come and lead us in a brief closing song and if you need prayer we would invite you to come I'm gonna ask the prayer team to come even now as I prepare to close with prayer and they'll be here to pray for you remember that we spoke specifically about those needing prayer for healing but whatever it is if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior if you want to recommit your life to him if you want to repent of anything and you don't have to be specific necessarily unless the Lord leads you to do so but the Bible does say we're to confess our sins to one another that we might be healed. Whatever your need is this morning, we'll have people up here to pray for you. We encourage you to come as we sing our final song. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these words from Peter as well as the other passages that we've read this morning. God, your word is amazing. It's awesome. It's powerful. And your word does keep us on the right path if we will take heed, if we will listen to it, if we will hear it if we will obey it. Lord, we are not of those who shrink back, who draw back. But Lord, we want to finish the race. We want to continue to fight the good fight of the faith until we see Jesus face to face. Lord, give us strength. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to love what you love and hate what you hate. Lord, to be like, like righteous Lot, not a perfect man, but a man who was saved because he put his faith in you and he, he resisted the wickedness around him. He was troubled by it. He was upset by it. He was vexed by it. Lord, don't ever let us get to the place where we are comfortable with the wickedness all around us. Help us to love the sinner, but hate the sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.